Be seated. Well, turn your Bibles today. Matthew chapter 6 is where we're headed. We have been doing a series called Jesus Said What? And it's about the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, next time we speak, it'll be the last one. This is number 7. We have been looking at verse by verse, Matthew uh, 5, 6, and 7. And I have made this statement uh, that the Sermon on the Mount shaped the morality of Western civilization. Now listen, most of us in the room today have not even shaped the culture of Texarkana. You know, we, we don't even shape the culture of our of our high schools very much, or or whatever the case may be. We may we may not do much towards shaping the environment of our workplace. But what Jesus said in these three short chapters, many believe, shaped what we know as Western civilization. I'll give you some quotes that support that, and I want you to kind of see if you can guess who it is. The first one is, I, I do not believe there's a problem in this country or the world today which could not be settled if we approached it through the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. President Harry S. Truman. Here's a modern actor, one of my favorites, even quoted the saying of Jesus, you cannot serve God and mammon, Matthew McConaughey. The Sermon on the Mount went straight to my heart, said Mahatma Gandhi. The Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount contain my religion. Our second president, John Adams. And finally, the great question is, can war be outlawed from the world? If so, it would mark the greatest advance in civilization since the Sermon on the Mount. General Douglas MacArthur. So I share these things to you because the impact of what Jesus said has shaped lives in the past and shaping lives today. Last week we talked about what Jesus said. And again, these three chapters are dozens of topics, each one a verse or several verses long, that shape our values, that teach us how to think, that teach us how to live in a way that pleases God. Last week we talked about fasting and we talked about laying up treasure in heaven. Today will be very, very personal. We'll talk about worry. We'll talk about judging, and we'll talk about persistence as receiving answers to our prayers. So let's begin with a simple statement Jesus said that confounds me. Matthew chapter 6, we begin the section on worry. Uh, Jesus said, therefore, I tell you, don't worry. So how many can say, well, I guess it's just that easy. Well, listen, we all know it's not just that easy. How many warriors in the room? Anybody wave your hand here? Boy, me too. Both hands, both feet. It's easy to worry. Now, You'll see this word, therefore. When I see the word, therefore, in the Bible, what I do is I stop and pull back and say, well, what's it there for? Which simply means you want to understand the context of what Jesus is saying. And Jesus, just the, last week, the section that we looked at, when Jesus said, don't lay up treasure in heaven, or I'm sorry, don't lay up treasure on earth where the moth and rust and steel get stolen, but lay up treasure in heaven. And it talked about the priority of investing our resources, investing our, what we have, our material goods, helping people and advancing God's kingdom. And right after he said that, now he's going to say, don't worry. That if you are investing in God's kingdom, don't worry about your future. Jesus said this, I, I, don't, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you're going to eat or drink, or your body, what you're going to wear. And he makes a profound state question. He says, is not your life more than food and the body more than clothes? Message Bible says there's far more to life than food. There's far more important things than what we do every day. There's something more important than the next suit I buy. 
There's something more important than the next motorcycle you get. There's something more important than, than the house you live in. There's something more important than the car I drive or the, or the, or, or the bass boat that I want to get. All these things that are a part of our life, not bad things. But yet Jesus is saying something's more important than the acquisition of these material things. Last week we talked about the tension between God giving us things to enjoy, but not living life shortchanging ourselves just with the things, but living with the kingdom purpose. Um, Jesus said, don't worry because basically, I'm going to take care of you. Now, the word worry, by definition, it means to be anxious, to be nervous, to be uneasy about the future. It means to be concerned that something bad will happen. Now, the first part of this section on worry, I want to talk about specifically what Jesus said, worrying about our future finances. But secondly, I want to talk about generally, worry in general, how you and I deal with it on a, on a daily basis. Look at verse 26. Uh, because the essence of this is what Jesus is going to say. If you don't want to worry about the future, you have to live by faith in God. He's not going to tell you that you don't have to work. He's not going to tell you you don't have to save. But he's going to underscore the, the validity of our trust in God and our faith that God is our provider. Look at verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns. But your heavenly Father feeds them. And then he asked this amazing question uh, uh, that really touches our heart. Are you not much more valuable than birds? In other words, you and I are created in the image of God. You and I bear God's uniqueness. He would even call us sons and daughters as we're adopted in his family. And Jesus said, you're more important than a bird, but I feed the bird every day of his life. Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? More than likely, you'll lose life by worrying. And then the second example, why do you worry about clothing? And he likens flowers in the field and their beauty to clothes. Listen, most of the time we wear clothes not just for their utility value to keep us warm or our body covered. There's style involved. You don't change clothes in your closet usually because, you know, it's wore out. A lot of times we change because there's new styles. But now he's saying, look at the flowers and their beauty and imagine that that beauty is clothing. See how the flowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin or they're not working to become beautiful. I love to garden. My mom and I have shared uh, the joy of gardening. We picked it up from her mother, my grandmother. And this week I took a picture of five different azaleas that were blooming in my yard and sent them to mom. And we reflected on this glory and this beauty. But Jesus said, I tell you that not even King Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these flowers. And if that is how God clothes the grass or the flowers of the field, which is here today and tomorrow thrown in the fire to be burned, notice what he says. Will he not much more clothe you? Now that's not a slap right there. Jesus, sometimes Jesus did. When the disciples, you know, couldn't see someone healed or whatever the case was, he'd say they had little faith. But this could have a different meaning. This could have literally, the translation of this, little faith ones. And it's more like Jesus is saying to them, uh, 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 he's not scolding them, but he's encouraging them and saying, don't you trust that I can take care of you? It's like he's looking down at you and I. We're, you're going to college. You're working. Uh, you own a business. You don't know what the future is going to be like. And it's like Jesus is standing there talking to you, 
to people who are putting the kingdom of God first and saying, can't you trust me to take care of you? I know you can. I'll show you if you let me. And then he summarizes verse 31. Don't worry, saying, what are we going to eat, drink, or wear? And then he says, the pagans run after all these things. Now, pagan is kind of an ugly word today, but a pagan simply is an unbeliever. So what Jesus is saying is those that don't believe in me, their whole life is given towards work and getting money to live. They're not necessarily doing it because they're selfish or bad. They just want to have a nice life. They want to have a, a nice home. They want to have a you know, a duck boat or whatever the case is. But he said that's what they're living for. They're responsible people. That's a good thing. But for the Christian, it's a little bit different. We're not just living for the things of this world. We're living for a higher purpose. For example, you get up tomorrow and you go to work. Maybe you work at the hospital or Cooper Tire or wherever you may work. Uh, when you go to work, I want to ask you this question, or maybe you're a student. Is it, well, it wouldn't apply as a student. That's your future money as a student. But if you're going to Cooper Tire, are you just going to make money or you're going because that's the place where God has you to influence people? Is your, is your job your ministry? And when you see your work in this fashion, it's not just a place to make money. It's the way that God's going to cause money to flow into your hands, but it's the place where you are a Christian influence on a very personal, individual way to people. Uh, Jesus said this, and this is, again, so encouraging. Your Father knows you need them. And at the core of this worry and fear about how I'm going to be taken care of tomorrow is a knowledge that my God in heaven cares about me. Now, now let's look at a couple examples here as he talks about not worrying because of birds and flowers. Uh, look at the way uh, these ducks. Uh, now, God is feeding them right now, and he didn't send a farmer out with corn, and he didn't plant rice. He just set in motion the cycles of nature. And these cycles of nature so that everywhere that there's water uh, across North America and even further south, wherever these ducks are, all they go to water is they start looking around and they find seeds in the water to eat. They find grass that they enjoy. And guess what? If they don't find it there, they go somewhere else because God, the creator, has set in motion the cycle of nature. And nature produces food for them to eat. Here's another example here now. It, it, when it said that uh, the birds don't sow or reap, uh, do you think that bird is getting ready to pick up that big shovel and plant its garden? <laughs> now you laugh at it. I mean, that's his compost pile. I mean, after all, he's got to eat, right? He's got to do something. No, he's just propping there. I can't imagine him picking up that big shovel. But God is his provider. And what the Lord is saying, just as I'm able to take care of the birds, I can take care of you. Now, I'm not suggesting you, when, when, notice what Jesus said. He's talked about food, clothing, shelter. He's talking about the basic necessities of life. I cannot guarantee you if you get, you know, uh, if Amazon offers you a, a low interest rate card for a thousand bucks and you spend it all, I can't guarantee you that the next day God's going to give you that thousand bucks. But Jesus is saying, I'll help you live this life. Now, look at verse 33, kind of how he sums it up. He said, you don't have to worry. I'll take care of you, but I want you to seek first. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Do you remember the Lord's Prayer that we learned a few weeks ago in the prayer? What was the first petition in the Lord's Prayer? Not my needs, not my daily bread, but let your kingdom come, let your will be done. That was the first part of the prayer. Well, here the first, the, 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 the first priority for us is God's kingdom, and these things will be given to us as well. 
Now, here's the problem. If, if I'm going to seek first the kingdom, if I'm going to use a portion of my wealth to help people, to advance God's kingdom, if I'm going to tithe, you look at the, the, the numbers and it seems like I have less. I mean, if it, 100 minus 10 is 90, right? But when God's blessing is on it, 100 minus 10 could equal 110 or 120. I got a beautiful letter this week from a single mom that drives a ways to church. And uh, for years, she said her husband uh, said, we can't afford to tithe. And uh, he had had problems and, and left the family. But she said, we were committed to the Lord and said, I'm here to say today, we've been driving sometimes three cars. I'm a single mom raising two college kids and I'm not super educated. But guess what? We've tithed the whole time. We've never missed a meal. We get to eat out after church every Sunday. It's not magical. But it's almost a sense that God's hand of favor is on my life. And I can trust that God will take care of me when I'm trying to do kingdom business first. Now, let me give you an example. Let's say you, you feel that the Lord wants you to do a life group on, on Wednesday night. He wants you to open your home or some kind of outreach ministry. Or, or, or maybe God wants you to do, you know, what, what it may be, uh, feeding the people under the bridge on Saturday morning. But the problem is you're going to have to miss some work time to do that. They'd offer you extra hours or they would, you know, give you, uh, give you an extra incentive if you would work Saturday morning. Well, now your choice is serving God or working there. Jesus is saying if you, he's called you to do something, he has a way to make up the difference. It's not a gimmick, but it's God's hand that's on our life. Seek first the kingdom. Uh, don't worry about tomorrow, verse 34. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble uh, uh, on its own. So what you and I are doing, we are living a life of daily faith. Because when you participate in this way in God's kingdom, a missionary comes through. And uh, I've just been so thrilled. We just had about, how many people did you take to Mexico? 22. 22 people. From our church went to Mexico. They did multiple women's conferences. They did church construction. Uh, you know, uh, they served the poor. They ministered to kids. Uh, we've got a group that's, I think they're still in Burma right now. They've been to the Philippines. Uh, they're helping the poor. They're doing conferences. They're ministering around the world. They pay their own tickets. There's a cost to be paid for it. But guess what? This is a part of God's kingdom work. Sometimes there's a sacrifice, but what this activity is, it's eternal and it's not temporary. And I can tell you that if you, from my own personal experience, that if you will set yourself to seek the Lord, you will find that God's hand of blessing will be on your life. Let me tell you a little story here. Uh, when I was probably 23, 24, I had decided I was going to go in the ministry full time. I moved back to California uh, and uh, I rented a room from an elder and literally it was about as wide as from there to there and about that big. And all it had in it was a single bed, uh, a, a lamp, and a table. But I was perfectly content. Now, isn't it amazing that God can help you be happy if you don't have as much? And sometimes when you get all the stuff, you're still not happy. But I was content because I was serving the Lord, and it was time to go on a missions trip. And uh, we went to Mexico, and we were driving to Mexico. And uh, the people that I was staying with, their son, Carney Lansford, happened to be the third baseman for the team that was based in Los Angeles. So when we drive through Los Angeles, we pull up to his palatial mansion, and I'm sleeping in this room that is literally twice as big as my living room is right now. It's a true story. I'm 23, and I don't, I don't, I don't have much money. And I cried myself to sleep that night thinking, I'm not ever going to have anything because he's a baseball player and I'm going to be a preacher and preachers just don't have any money and, and I'm not going to have anything. 
such a mature man. <laughs> but I improved a little bit. Well, lo and behold, I married the preacher's daughter. And that's worth a lot right there. Well, you know, we got married. Neither one of us had any money, and her parents just out of the blue said, we'll help you buy a house. We'll do the down payment, and uh, y'all make the payments, and, and uh, when, when we sell it, we'll, we'll split the equity. Uh, they had done the same thing. They got an inheritance, and they started you know, investing in California real estate. Well, lo and behold, uh, the payment was so much. We, it was 17% interest back then, by the way. 17% interest. We had to get a, what's called a negative amortization loan, which means you don't pay the whole principal each, to, each month. Uh, and we had to have a roommate. So I got another guy living in the house with my bride and I. We've only got one bathroom. So it's a little bit awkward there for a while. Well, after seven years, the house tripled in value. And uh, when we moved back here, we had several thousand dollars to be able to invest in a home here. And today I live in a beautiful home in Redwater. It's a country home kind of feel. I got 10 acres, a pond, I got a garden. I, the very things that I love to do in my life, and I, it's not a mansion, but I love it. And I never could have afforded it. Had I not been blessed by God, because I can't take any credit for it. It was not my wisdom in, in, in coming up with it. Someone just blessed me that had been blessed by God, and then God blessed me and God took care of me. I'm telling you, friends, God will take care of you. I know people... They give cars away and somehow God gives them another car. They give a shotgun away and God blesses them with another. It just kind of comes out from nowhere. Uh, I cannot promise you that God will make everybody rich, but I can promise you what Jesus said. If you'd seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, he'll take good care of you in your life and he'll give you the ability to be content with what you have. Come on, give him a, a good hand. Now, let me shift... Let me get personal a moment. Let me shift from the specifics he talked about, about worry about your finances, to, uh, to generalize worry. And, and here's my question. H how do you not worry when you're worried? <laughs> because when I'm worried, I can't get it out of my head. I want to tell you a little story. It's, a, it's a, 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 been a challenging time. Probably six years ago or so, my wife got breast cancer. And praise the Lord, she's been cancer-free five years. But after Linnell's uh, uh, cancer, I did fine through it. But when I got on the other side, I just had a meltdown. They just called it a generalized anxiety disorder. But it's like my body just got out of sync. And I began to live with this consuming anxiety, not because I was worried about anything in specific. It was, well, the MDs say my serotonin... Uh, got out of whack and my adrenaline got out of whack and it's like for three years I could never just find peace it's like it, 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 there was no specific thing to worry about it's like I lived on the edge of this cliff or this tall tall building looking down there just doing that and it wouldn't go away but the problem is the pill didn't fix it the problem is it was not just physiological, but it had an emotional, a mental component to it, and a spiritual component. And my counselor told me, you cannot just win this thing with a pill. You're going to have to fight through it. And my feelings became so strong that I felt I just absolutely, I, I cannot tell you how many times I felt incapable to come and stand behind the pulpit. But yet I would just do it anyway, this, this foreboding feeling that I'm about to die it was times I didn't want to drive my vehicle. I didn't want to go in a restaurant. I didn't want to go in Sam's. I didn't want to go in Walmart because I'd had panic attacks. 
Well, I was doing pretty good there for, uh, for several years. Not perfect, but much, much better. And I was doing so good, I got my doctor to uh, uh, let me get off my medicine. And I shouldn't have done that. Because whatever it is that it was doing, it was helping me. And then my, I started spiraling again, and this worry came back. Now, understand that there is a physiological aspect to it. The serotonin was out of whack, and you may need some help like that. But I just found myself beginning to worry again. I would lay in bed. My wife was on the mission field, and I laid in bed for four days. This is not too long ago. And in the morning, this is daylight savings time, so you're, you're up earlier before it's time to get up, you know, in that little time of the morning. Well, rather than thinking about pleasant and nice things, as soon as I wake up, I start thinking about the crisis that's about to happen in my life. There were some other things the doctor was concerned about at the time that uh, have since been rectified, but I woke up afraid of it. I woke up afraid of the test. I, I, I just didn't feel like I could go to work, and the whole thing was starting to spiral, and I could not get it out of my head. You ever been there? After about four days of that, one day I got up in the morning and I said, this is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Now, I'm not saying I'm anything. I'm just saying this. If you can imagine, this is kind of a little crank fulcrum here. On one side is your feelings, and it's got some facts that go with them. But these feelings sometimes seem so real that they just overwhelm everything. And over here is your faith. When I got out of bed this morning, I decided that I was going to stop believing the lie, and I was going to start believing the truth. This is the day the Lord has made. I'm making a choice, and I'm going to rejoice, not because I feel like it, but because my faith is going to move me, not my feelings. And worry took me to a place of fear, and faith takes me to a place of freedom. Let me tell you two big things I learned You've got to confront worrisome thoughts. The thoughts you think about will take root in your mind and control you. You cannot let them run free in your mind. I'll give you a Bible verse, 2 Corinthians 10, 5. It's talking broadly conversations among people, but certainly with our own mind. He says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And I want you to say this with me. We take every thought captive to obey Christ. I take thoughts captive that are lies. Here's the second thing. If you don't get anything else today, write this down. You must, we must reprogram our mind with truth. We must replace lies with truth. Where do you get that pastor? Philippians 4, 8 says, whatever is true, think about these things. So say, pastor, what's true? The word of God is true. And there were scriptures God had spoken to me. I, I received several personal prophecies that I, I interpreted to be from the Lord. It was true. God spoke to me in several times very specifically in that, and that became truth. So when I woke up that morning, after saying, this is the day the Lord has made, I will rejoice, I started writing down my new confessions and thoughts for the day. I wrote down that today I will not fear because God is with me, Isaiah 41.10. I wrote down God will finish his work he started in me, Philippians 1.6. I wrote down I am not afraid to die because when I leave this body, I'm going to be with the Lord. I wrote down when I, if, I, if I fall, God will catch me. Now, you remember the whole thing I was telling you about and that fearful foreboding? I was praying one morning in my driveway where this concrete stops and it turns into gravel. And at that very spot, I heard the Holy Spirit say, I will catch you. 
I will catch you. I'm reading my Bible last Sunday morning before preaching, and then I write down, like Gideon, I will go in the strength I have. I may not be perfect, but I'm going in the strength I have. And I am telling you, after those four days were over and I started replacing lies with truth, I got delivered from my worry. I'm telling you, it will break. It doesn't mean it may not come back. It doesn't mean I may not have to fight it another day. But I'm telling you, I found something that I did not have before. It was the truth of God. It was the Holy Spirit. And faith, come on, is the trump card to worry. I'm telling you, friends, there's a spiritual component to worry. Satan wants to torment our mind. He wants to keep you in bed. He wants to get you out of this world. He wants to get you on the sidelines, stop you from what God's asking. Uh, he wants to turn worry into paralyzing fear. You don't have to let him do it. And after we close our service today, well, I'm going to pray for people today. We're going to pray for people that are struggling with worry. I believe the Holy Spirit will bring some deliverance. Let's move on. Matthew 7, judging other people. Oh, you hear this a lot. Do not judge. That's the only verse some people know. Some people that are living a, a sinful life, and you say anything about it, they say, do not judge. Well, we'll talk about it. Or you too will be judged. That's serious. And Jesus said this, in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the same measure you use, it'll be measured to you. Now, the people that say that are half right. The word judge is the Greek word krino. It means to analyze or evaluate, to evaluate a person's behavior, to evaluate the movie, the TV show. Is it right or is it wrong? The second part of the definition is to condemn so as you can clearly see, Jesus is not forbidding judging. Actually, John 7, 24, Jesus said, don't judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So Jesus said on one hand, don't judge. But on another scripture, he says, judge with right judgment. So what is he saying? Jesus is saying, evaluate and analyze people and things, but don't do it in a condemning, condescending, or criticizing way. Do it in a way that when people are struggling and they're in a, a bad place, care enough to help them and talk to them and lead them to a better place, but do it because you love them, not because you hate them. Come on, somebody say praise the Lord. Now look at, look at verse 3, and here's kind of the... Uh, uh, it forms the basis for my, if I'm going to try to help you and point out something in your life, I've got to be living the right life myself. Verse 3, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye, but pay no attention to the plank or log in your own eye? Small, small piece of wood, big old stick, both in your eye. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? And then Jesus, as he's done many times in this passage, you hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. In other words, Jesus is saying, I want you to help people. I want you to help them get over their brokenness. I just want you to be living the life first. I just want you to have a credible life uh, so that you're not, uh, not being a hypocrite. Uh, Romans tells us this, Romans chapter 2, Paul said, you tell others not to steal, but yeah. Uh, you say that others must not take part in adultery, but you're guilty of that sin. Then he goes on to say, as the result, they were Jews, is now Gentiles turn away from God because of you. Uh, when Once we've dealt with our own issues, and, and again, I'm not saying you have to be perfect to help people. But as Christians, we need to clean our act up. 
Once we've dealt with our own sins, then we can help other people. Listen to what Galatians 6 says. Galatians 6 says, If another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should do what? Gently and humbly help that person on the right track. We've judged their behavior according to the word of God, and with humility, we encourage them to go the right direction. Now, here's a little odd scripture. Look at verse 6. Stay with me now. Don't give dogs what is sacred. Let me tell you a funny story. It has nothing to do with the text. My uh, uh, daughter-in-law sent me a video of my son eating dog food yesterday. I'm sorry, my grandson. I don't know how she filmed this, but she said, Henry, spit it out. He's one now. Henry, spit it out. And she does, and he turns around and he runs back into the bathroom. And she follows him in the bathroom with the phone, and she wiggles him before you know it, little dog things are, are falling out on the floor. He, they've got little pets, so he liked dog food better than people food. I, I, I offered to give them some money if they couldn't afford to feed my grandson, and <laughs> I, 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 I don't know quite what they'll say. But anyway, that has nothing to do with my message at all. <laughs> go, go back to the Bible. Don't give dogs what is sacred. Don't throw your pearls to pigs. In the Bible, dogs and pigs were kind of demeaned. Uh, they were despised. Uh, Jesus said, if you do this, they'll trample them under their feet and they'll turn and tear you to pieces. What does he mean here? He is likening people who are abusive and profane uh, in their rejection of Christ to dogs and pigs. And he's saying what they'll do is, uh, well, this word abusive and profane, you know, a lot of people, if you try to talk to them about Christ, you post something on Facebook, um, and they'll just, you know, say, I don't want to have anything to do with it, no thank you, whatever. But some people just get ugly. They use the F word. They wave their middle finger at you. They slam the door in your face. Uh, the National Endowment of the Arts years ago uh, gave money for a piece of art called P-I-S-S Christ, and it was a crucifix in a jar of urine, and that was art. Well, that's blasphemous. That's what this word profane means, and what Jesus is saying, listen, he's not telling us not to talk to people that are, that are wicked about Christ. That's what they need. That's why they're wicked. But there may come a point where those same people are so repulsed, and they don't want anything to do with it, and they tell you to get the blank out of there, that Jesus said it's okay to say, all right. Where do you get that, Pastor? Well, Acts 13, after this sustained rejection, it's okay to move on. Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas in the Jewish temple synagogue, they said it was necessary that we first preach the word of God to you Jews, but since you have rejected it and judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we're going to the Gentiles. What am I saying, Pastor? What are you saying? I'm saying do your best to share Christ with everybody you know. If people are ugly to you, pray for them. Try to give them another chance. But at some point, you have to just and walk down the road. Come on, somebody say praise the Lord. They need Jesus, but sometimes we walk away. Now, let me wrap up the third part here. I hope it will inspire you. It is about answered prayer. It is about the place of persistence in answered prayer. Persistence means giving up. I, I, I fear that you and I are more like microwaves than crockpots when it comes to praying. I pray once, figure God heard it. Second time, he's trying to decide. Third time, if he hadn't done it, he's probably not going to do it, so I quit. 
Stay with me on persistence. Now, Jesus uh, mentions, or he says, ask and it'll be given to you. Well, I don't know about you, but I've asked a lot and some things weren't given. Seek and you'll find, and this is like three ways of saying the same thing, knock and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives. What this should do is not make you look at your past track record in prayer, but make you believe that God can and will answer my prayers. It should give you hope to persevere. He says, which, and now he's going to talk about, because here's what happens. When I pray and God doesn't answer it, I feel like God doesn't care. I sing that song, God is good all the time, and I lose my job. And so God must not care. Well, what he's going to do now is he's going to underscore the fact that he is still a good God, though we're living in an evil world. Look at verse 9. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? I tell you what, if my kids started putting rocks in my little boy's Cheerios, they'd be in trouble. Have you, have you ever eaten wild game, birds, ducks or dove, quail, and it had bird shot in it, you bit it, and it broke? <laughs> I mean, it's just not pleasant. I go out of my way or my wife goes out of her way when we cook it to get the shot out. Well, can you imagine putting somebody, somebody putting shot in it and you, they laughed at you when you broke a tooth? Well, God's saying, look, I am not like that at all. God's saying, you've got some evil about you. You know how to give good gifts to your children. And then what's it say? How much more? How much more will your, heaven, your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Once again, it's encouraging persistence. Now, here's something you can't see because we read English, and English does not have the same tenses of verbs as the Greek language. These words, ask, seek, and knock, are in Greek, they are, the pre they are a present imperative implying a continuous sense of action. In other words, ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. If, you had, if someone had given you a, I don't know what, let's say they'd given you a gold coin, a, 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 an ounce of gold, solid, uh, solid gold coin, it's worth $1,200, $1,300, and uh, you misplaced it. How many know you would look until you found it? Sure you would. Uh, how about, uh, uh, let's say, a friend of yours or your brother or your, somebody that you care about has had surgery, they're at home, and you're going to bring them something to eat. So you have gone through Olive Garden, and you have got their family spectacular, and you're sitting on their doorstep, and the doorbell doesn't work, so you go, oh, must not be here. No, you don't do that, even though it is Olive Garden. What you do is you go, hey, it's me out here. I got something to eat. Still don't come. But you see a light in the back, so you know they're there. Their car's there. They'd had surgery. So you go around to the back window, and you say, if this is the window, you say, hey, it's me. Don't shoot now, but I got something to eat. <laughs> and they were sitting watching television. You said, oh, thank you, thank you. brought some food. What is that? You knocked and kept on knocking. You kept on going. You kept on seeking until you were able to deliver the food. And this is what Jesus is saying about prayer. Sometimes you and I must persist in prayer. We must pray and not give up because there's forces that are stopping it. Let me close with a story that Jesus told about persistence in prayer. I want you to remember, remember this. I guess it's an acronym. Push. Everybody say push. Pray until something happens. Push with me now. Pray until something happens. 
Uh, this is what Jesus is teaching about persistence. Luke chapter 18. This is going to be a good application from a bad example. And I'll close with this. The, 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 the widow represents you and I and her needs. The judge who's a bad judge represents the opposite of what God is. So a good, exa- a, a good lesson from a bad example. Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should... Yeah, we're going to try that a little better. See, when I do this, I want you to say it out loud because if you say it, I think it'll stick. So Jesus told his disciples a parable that they should... Yeah, and not give up. What Jesus said in a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God, here's the bad example, nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming with a plea, grant me justice against my adversary. Verse four, for some time... This is, it's, it's a while. He refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, because this widow keeps bothering me. Now, you are not bothering God when you pray multiple times. You're not twisting his arm until God finally says, okay, okay, I'll do it. That was the bad judge. He says, listen to this unjust judge, and now it's almost like God's the opposite. Look at verse 7. Will not God bring justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him. And this is the problem. We pray one time and quit. We put in one prayer request. We pray several times and we don't have tenacity to stay with it until. Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he's going to see they get justice quickly. And then he makes this statement. When the son of man comes, when Jesus returns to the earth, will he find faith on the earth? Matthew 24, it's a great tribulation going on in the last days. There's going to be believers on the earth somewhere getting saved. But, are, are, but in all the horrible tragedy they're going through, will they keep believing in God because things are getting so bad? That's the question Jesus is asking now. Let me close with this. Prayers are delayed or unanswered for several reasons. One, it could be spiritual warfare. In the book of Daniel, Daniel had prayed a prayer, and the Bible says God sent the answer. And three weeks in coming... An angel literally said, I was bringing the answer, but another demonic angel stopped me. There may be spiritual warfare trying to hurt you. The devil may be trying to stop your life. Here's another one. God's timing. God has your answer, but it's not just today. It's not just the right time. Zachariah and Elizabeth wanted a baby. They waited all their life, and John the Baptist was born. But here, it could be this one too. It could be the choices of other people. If you are on the boat with Jonah, how many know you're about to die? And it has nothing to do with you and praying won't help. It's all about Jonah. You could be on a boat with a Jonah and your prayers are not answered until they get their act together. Those are just a few. You may not know what the answer is, but I'm telling you, friends, let you and I find fresh resolve today that we're going to pray until the answer comes or the situation's over. I'm going to pray until, listen, I'm going to pray as long as the need is there until the need either disappears or God answers the way I'm praying. I'm going to pray because Jesus said, ask and it'll be given to you. Come on, give him a good hand today. He's worthy of praise. Why don't you stand to your feet with me? And uh, we really, really appreciated you being here. N- next week, we have a real a real privilege. Uh, Linnell's dad, uh, Dr. Candace Tracy, is going to be with us on Thanksgiving. I'll be here. It'll be a great day. And then we'll finish up the Sermon on the Mount. But I want to ask you to do one thing before we go. 
I want you to just forget about lunch just a second. I want you to forget about your kids. I want you to forget about where you need to be. And I want you to just give God the opportunity to let what you heard in your head today sleep down into your heart. So could we just welcome the Holy Spirit just a moment? Because we've talked about some very important things in life today. I want you to just bow your head just a moment. And I want you to just pray with me right now and say, Holy Spirit, would you speak to me? Holy Spirit, would you change me? Holy Spirit, would you help me? Now that last section is about persistence in prayer. And all of us have gotten discouraged and quit praying. All of us have had things that are really important to us, but God hadn't changed it. And the circumstance is still kind of hanging out there. But the fact is we've not been praying. And I wonder if you would just join me today. If you're here, say, Pastor, that's me. I know what it is. And I want to renew my commitment to God today. And I'm going to get back in the place of prayer until the answer comes. Just slip up your hand to heaven right now. Nobody looking around. That's right. This is a you and God thing. Now, Holy Spirit, I'm asking for grace right now. Come on, just lift your hand. Holy Spirit, give me grace right now to pray and not give up. Holy Spirit, help me get over my discouragement. Come on, pray that right now. Help me not. Help me. Help me, Lord. Because I just, I felt like, I don't know what I felt, Lord, but I just am not praying fervency, fervently, and I could be the only person praying on this person's behalf. Help me, Holy Spirit. Renew this in me. Remind me. Let me say yes. And nobody, keep your heads bowed a moment. Judging. We all know we're supposed to evaluate right and wrong, but the problem is sometimes I judge and I have, I'm critical. And I'm condemning. I'm overbearing. And I belittle people. Well, let's ask God to change that in us. If that's you, just slip your hand to heaven. Just you and God. Just say, Lord, change me. Turn, turn, turn my, my condemning heart into a caring heart. Forgive me, Lord, for judging people, Lord. Forgive me if I've been a hypocrite. Others, just slip your hand to heaven. Lord, I've been a hypocrite in that area. I receive your forgiveness right now. Help me do what Galatians 6 says to still know right and wrong, but gently and humbly help people. Help me, Holy Spirit. Now, once you look at me now, eyeball to eyeball, just a second. I want us to take a moment about this issue of worry. And I want us to believe in just a few moments that the Holy Spirit's going to begin a deliverance in your life. I'm telling you, I had a hard four days. But on day number five, I was a different person. And the same God who helped me see that what I was worrying about were lies. The same God who gave me truth, because truth sets us free, is the same God that can set you free from worry. And I'm going to have people pray for you today, because that's deliverance. Because worry becomes a spiritual stronghold of fear. So that's you right now, and you need to get free. You want to, symbolically, by coming to the altar, you want to leave the lies, and you want to come to the truth of God. Why don't you slip out of your chair and just come and gather around the altar right now. Just come on, come on up right now. All of our services, people are coming. Just simply saying, Pastor, I struggle with worry. Doesn't mean you're a bad person. Just means you're a person. And coming to the altar saying, Lord, I want you to set me free. 
because it's a trick of the devil. I'm telling you, friend, it's a trick of the devil. Tormenting my mind in the early morning hours was a trick from hell. But I'm telling you, the sun can set you free. What you're doing by coming right now, you're walking away from lies. God's going to begin showing you what lies you're believing. And God's going to begin showing you that his truth is greater. God is going to begin speaking to you through the Bible. See, this is a prophetic statement right now. God's going to begin, come on, just come. Just come. You don't have to tell anybody anything if you don't want to. But if you're tired of being tormented by the tormentor, by worry, I'm telling you the Bible says, he whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Now I want you to look at me as you're around the altar right now. Somebody's going to pray for you, but I don't want you to just look to them to be your answer. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to start asking the Holy Spirit, what's the truth? Because here's what I have ended up with. I have ended up with scriptures. I've ended up with personal prophecies. And most importantly, perhaps, I have ended up with times when God just spoke to me and I knew it was God and it got me out of bed in the morning. God can speak to you and he can start today. God can help you. I can't tell you why I got out of the bed one morning and said, this is the day the Lord has made. I can't tell you why it stopped that day. I'm just telling you, that's the day turnaround change. I believe right now in Jesus' name that this is a day of turnaround for you. This is a moment of turnaround for you. So I'm going to ask my prayer team. I'm going to ask my prayer team to come on up right now. And you that minister prophetically, I'm going to ask you to just make our way through the crowd. And we're just going to pray a short prayer of blessing over you in just a moment. We're going to sing a closing song, and, and, and that's when that's going to happen. But right now, I want you to just close your eyes if you're here up front. And I want you to just start asking the Holy Spirit, what's the lie and what's the truth? Now, now, let me speak to you that are in the congregation right now. Because you may be here today, and your problem is greater than worry. Your problem is you just need a real relationship with God. Your problem is you need more than what you have. You need more than religion. Let me tell you some great news today. You look over at that cross. It symbolizes the cross that Jesus died on. And Jesus didn't die an accident. Jesus died because of the sins of the world. And see, it's my sins and your sins that separate us from God. But the wonderful news is God has made a way for us to be reconciled to God. See, sin is the reason people die. Sin is the reason there's evil in the world. And sin will bring judgment one day. But the cross reminds us, the empty cross, that Jesus offers forgiveness for our sins. Jesus not only died on the cross, he was buried. And the third day, he rose from the dead. And the Bible says he's coming back one day as King of kings and Lord of lords to reign for all eternity. That's the good news. But the, my question for you today is, do you know him? My question, if you were to die today, are you 100% sure that you'd go to heaven? My friend, there's no reason to walk out of this building if you're not. You can be today. I'm not inviting you to join a church. I'm asking you to give your life to Christ. Maybe you're here today and you're old enough to have figured out that what the world offers just doesn't satisfy. A drug won't do it. Alcohol won't do it. A degree won't do it. Money won't do it. There's something more in life. It's a real relationship with God. Maybe you're at a time of your life where you start thinking about dying and you're wondering what's the next step and, and <laughs> how can I go to heaven? It's committing your life to Jesus, friends. You say, Pastor, what do I need to do? I'll tell you simply what the Bible says. Believe in Jesus and follow him. If you receive him as your savior, if you will pray a prayer inviting Christ to your life, I will tell you the same God who changed me on August 15, 1976 will change you. So as we begin to sing this last song, I'm going to invite you that are here today saying, Pastor, I want to commit my life to Christ. 
I've gotten away from God, but today I want to get back with God. You just slip out of your chair and one of our pastors will meet you at the cross and they'll pray for you as you make this great step to the Lord. So I want you to go ahead and begin to sing now, Pastor Zach. I want our prayer team to just start walking through the altars and just start praying for people. And we're going to pray that God would reveal to them the truth and God would expose the lie. Come on, prayer team, pray with me right now. Let's just sing this last song, Pastor Zach. Amen. 